Thank you for listening to Christ Church Showmans. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christ Church Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and, and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have spoken, that we don't have to wonder about what you have said. We don't have to trust our instincts, our intuitions, experts. You are the sovereign Lord and creator of all things. And you have spoken to us this morning. Would you calm our fears this morning? Would you convict us of sin? Would you help us to understand and repent this morning? Would you give us hope? And most of all, Lord, would you receive all glory for everything that is said this morning? It is in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, we have been walking through, for the last few weeks, through the book of Ephesians, and we're now in chapter 7. And it's interesting that I would get this uh, assigned to this text this morning, because uh, this text and I have a little bit of history uh, la- starting last year. Uh, my dad has been reading through uh, the scriptures, and last year came, we came upon this text, and we're discussing it together. And at, at the time, I, s- I had to say, I have no idea what this text means, and I've kind of avoided it ever since, um, and it just so happened I was assigned to this text, so the Lord has a sense of humor uh, in that, because I didn't pick it, but uh, I didn't even know that this was the text until Monday, so, uh, but we're going to read this morning um, uh, the wisdom of Solomon, and as he has been given wisdom from the Lord, as he has been living his life, he's been making some observations, and God's been blessing his insight. And so let's examine this text that caused no shortage of consternation for me this last year, Um, starting in verse 15. In my vain life, I've seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. The Bible is replete with accounts of righteous people who have suffered for being righteous. The Job comes to mind, for example, that their righteousness did not secure a life that was free of problems, free of trouble. And then there are other people who sin who have living who are living in wickedness and yet it seems like they are prospering and that they live a long and seemingly happy life while the righteous are cut short and this seems to us unjust although blessings generally accompany righteous living prosperity health safety they're not rewards for righteousness but are given according to God's good pleasure. As we learn that God is sovereign over all things. He says in in Matthew that that God sends rain 
on the just and the unjust alike, and he causes his sun to shine upon the just and the unjust alike. God is so merciful that he gives blessings even to wicked people who sin against his name. He gives, he gives us food, shelter, warmth. Everything that we have is a gift from God, even if we are living in sin and rebellion against Him. He has mercy on us. The very reason that we are not destroyed immediately is because He's merciful to us. And so I think there are here a couple warnings for us to not gauge prosperity as, a, as an indicator of God's favor, Right? We don't gauge prosperity or health or good circumstances as necessary consequence of God's favor. God's not necessarily saying, I approve of everything that you're doing just because you have stuff. Neither are we to judge bad circumstances as God's judgment or his anger against us, per se, because the righteous suffer in this life. And we are promised that in the scriptures. So part of our thinking about our circumstances in our life, we need, to, we need to make sure that we are not judging God's favor according to our circumstances, but judging our circumstances according to God's favor. But some who see mundane righteousness go seemingly unrewarded in this life, and wickedness seemingly unpunished in this life can go to extremes in their thinking. And that's what the troublesome passage that's coming up is about to give us a glimpse of. Verse 16. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Huh. Be not overly righteous. What does that mean? I thought we were supposed to be holy. I thought we were supposed to be, be righteous. I thought that we were supposed to live perfect. Is Solomon somehow advocating for this kind of moderationism? Don't be too holy. Don't be too wicked. But kind of be somewhere in between. That's on its face, that's what it sounds like he's saying. But in order to better understand this ugly coin, let's look at the easier side to understand. Uh, be not overly wicked, nor be a fool. We can start there, because <laughs> it'll be a little easier to understand. Um, since righteousness doesn't ensure long life or blessing or prosperity, why not go out like a firework, right? Why not cast off all restraint and just do whatever makes us happy because whether we are righteous or whether we're wicked, that doesn't necessarily ensure that we'll have a good long life. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we dine in hell. The old saying goes, well, by casting off all restraint in wickedness, you usher in an early death. For example, uh, let's say you just cast off all restraint, you show no regard for the law, go out 
partying, drugs, alcohol, their odds are you might die on the way home from getting in a, a car accident or you overdose on drugs or whatever. So there are physical, earthly consequences to sin. It's not necessarily the judgment of God against sin, but there are earthly circumstances. You get arrested, at least, right? Uh, we all know that there are consequences, earthly consequences for sin, but also we know that judgment comes for sin. He says, why, why hasten your end? Why come to an early death? We know that unrestrained wickedness, just casting off all restraint, can lead and most often does lead to an early death. So that's, that's pretty understandable, right? I think we all understand that there is that. But what about being overly righteous? Let's look at the other side of the coin. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. So part of the trouble in understanding this text is we seem to get mixed messages, even in the same book um, of Ecclesiastes. At chapter, in chapter 8, verse 12 through 13, um, flip there with me, if you will. Uh, he says this, uh, in chapter 8, verses 12 through 13, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before Him. But it will not be well with the wicked, Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. Okay, so we're given this image of the wicked trying to prolong his days like a shadow. Like imagine, as the sun's going down, the shadows start to get longer. Um, he's trying to prolong his days in wickedness, and yet we know that it will not go well for the wicked. So obviously, Solomon doesn't think that being wicked is okay. But I think the, the strongest evidence is in uh, chapter 12, verse 13. So like the last two verses of the book. So let's look at this together. Chapter 12, verse 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God. And keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Okay, some clarity. This is the end of the matter. It has been heard, fear of the Lord and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing whether good or evil. So obviously, Solomon is not advocating evil because even the very secret deeds of our hearts, God will bring into judgment. We're to fear God and keep all His commandments. So what is unrighteousness if not disobeying the commands of God? The barrier is in language. The barrier is in understanding. He's clearly not advocating unrighteousness. So what does it mean to be overly righteous? Can you be excessively righteous? Well, yes, actually. Um, righteous deeds practiced wrongly are unrighteous. Righteous deeds practiced wrongly are unrighteous. And the clearest teaching we have on this is perhaps in Matthew 5, 
48. Would you turn there with me? Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. This is the last verse in chapter 5. Jesus is teaching here, and he's been teaching through the Beatitudes. He's been teaching through the Sermon on the Mount. And the last verse in this chapter says, You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Clearly, Jesus doesn't advocate some type of moderationism, a mix of good and evil. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Look at the very next verse, first verse of chapter 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. He goes on to describe how the Pharisees make their phylacteries large and broad so they can be seen. They make their fringes on their prayer shawls long. They like to blow trumpets in the streets when they give out handouts to the poor so that everybody can see them and recognize them. They love to stand out in the street corner and pray that they may be seen by men. Oh my goodness, that guy is so righteous. Look at that. He's praying. He doesn't care what anybody thinks about him. The truth is he he cares what people think about him. That's why he's praying out on the street. Jesus goes on to call them whitewashed tombs. On the outside, they're clean and neat. On the inside, they're full of rottenness and death. This is a picture of what it means to be overly righteous. The temptation is real. In wanting to be perfect, we want to be seen as perfect by other people. And the the irony is this is imperfection. Wanting to be seen as perfect is imperfection. Our wicked hearts take God's commands and we twist and we weaponize them against other people. Like the Pharisee, I'm not like that. Thank you, Lord, I'm not like that tax collector, that publican. Thank you, Lord, I'm better than them. Look how evil and wicked they are. Thank you, Lord, for making me not like that. We weaponize God's commands against others and then ultimately against ourselves. The same thing occurs with knowledge. He says, be not overly wise. The scriptures tell us that knowledge puffs up. You think about, a lot of us have gone through similar journeys in growing in our knowledge of God and and in doctrine and in knowing some of the things that um, seem difficult to understand. And there is a temptation, particularly in that, to think, I got this thing figured out. I, I feel... I feel like I got a good handle on things. And where I came from, or the people that, that I used to worship with, or the ways that I used to walk in, they don't have it as much together as I do. And so we look at contempt on even our Christian brothers and sisters because knowledge puffs up. We're so wicked that we take the revelation of God and act as if we, as if we discovered it, and instead of that He revealed it to us. Knowledge puffs up. So what Solomon seems to have in mind when he says, do not be overly righteous, that word overly is key. It's to not have a self 
righteousness. See, when you add something to righteousness, like self-righteous or overly righteous, it modifies righteousness. He seems to have in mind even a strict asceticism, this kind of denying of pleasures, this kind of embracing of laws that are additional to the laws of God, a strictness in keeping the law that goes beyond the spirit of the law. Here's some modern-day examples of this. Um, it's the reason that Catholic priests aren't allowed to marry, right? Because if we see, um, if we see uh, sex or lust as an innately sinful thing, well, we just got to get away from the whole thing altogether. Priests should be super holy. They should be the most holy people, and therefore, things of the flesh, they, don't, they should even think about them. They should just be chaste in all ways acting as if the marriage bed that God gave is somehow profane. It's the, it's the reason that many um, will forbid use of alcohol or tobacco as sinful. Because they're going past the letter of the law and say, well, drunkenness is a sin. Overuse of something is a sin. So therefore, I'm going to draw the line at even considering it. That's asceticism. And it is of no power to stop the flesh. It's going beyond the spirit of the law and saying it's not enough. Interestingly enough, it's also the reason that cornflakes are bland. Uh, you can blame the Seventh-day Adventists for that. They had a, an idea that in order to live holy, you had to have a bland diet. And cornflakes were a result of that experiment. So... It seems Kellogg's has evolved since then. <laughs> but uh, here's a helpful analysis by Doug Wilson about this passage. He says, what does it mean to be overly righteous? Of course God is perfectly righteous. This does not mean that he's taken it to an extreme. Clearly Solomon here is not addressing genuine piety, righteousness, or wisdom. He's speaking of what to all often passes for it. So what does this mean? Not to put too fine a point on it, it means... Nice Christian, priggish Christian, sanctimonious Christian, tight shoes Christian, pursed lips Christian, stickler Christian, insufferable Christian, prudish Christian, ostentatious Christian, quiet, day, quiet time every day or I'll go to hell Christian, conceited Christian, orthodox Christian, unchristian Christian. What men like in religion is not necessarily what God likes. What men admire in religion is not necessarily what God admires. There's a reason for the caricature. I mean, if you look in every single TV show or movie that has a religious character, they're always over the top. They're, they're killjoys. They're the ones who think of themselves as being better than everyone else. And, part, and I know part of the reason that those characters are written are because the authors hate God and want to take shots at his children, but also because there is truth to that caricature. Because we have a tendency in wanting to live perfect, to be seen as living perfect, to twist that for our own benefit. Luke 16, 15 says, and he's, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, and he said to them, Ye are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knoweth your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God.
we like to be well thought of, and that is being overly righteous. It's to perform our righteous deeds so that we can either fool ourselves into thinking that we're better than we are or to fool other people into thinking that we're better than we are. Friends, what we've just described is legalism. You've heard that word thrown around before, but that's what it is. Legalism is adding to the law of God. It is going past the letter of the law, going past the spirit of the law, and saying it needs to be improved. It wasn't enough. And the other way of living, being overly wicked, being foolish, is licentiousness. It is living as if there is no God. Living as if there is no standard that we are held accountable to. Both are a rejection of God's standard. One says God's standard is not enough. The other says there is no standard. But both of them are seeking to be autonomous. To live as if there is no God. It is ultimate atheism. And the key to understanding this is in verse 18. Verse 18. It is good that you should take hold of this. And from, and from that will hold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out of both of them. Both of what? Legalism and licentiousness. The one who fears God, who holds on to and will not, uh, will not let go of the fear of God, will escape from both being overly righteous, being legalistic, and being licentiousness or overly wicked. The one who fears of God shall come out of both of them. The point of both legalism and licentiousness is autonomy. Righteousness according to my standards. Pleasure according to my standards. And how do we escape? This text tells us to take hold of this and not let go. The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. What does it mean to fear the Lord? What does it mean to fear the Lord? What's well, funny, you can do a word study on the word fear, and you could look at the original meaning of the Hebrew and find something really spectacular. Fear the Lord means fear the Lord. It means be afraid of God. It's fear. It's not merely reverence. It's fear. This is God we're talking about. The person with whom we are dealing with is the omnipotent God of the universe. The elements bend at his commands. He can silence the wind and the waves and he can cause storms. He created every planet that rolls overhead. He created the stars. Angels fall on their faces before him and demons tremble at his name. This is our almighty God. We are to fear, to be afraid of this God because he is glorious and we are not. For God to be holy, for God to be other, he is different than us. He says, do not fear those who can kill the body and cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The commands of the New Testament aren't, don't fear God anymore because you're saved. No, because you're saved, fear the Lord rather than men. The commands remain for us. The one who fears the Lord, the one who says, I am not in control over my righteousness. I am not in control over my sin. God 
is in control. He is Lord. I am not autonomous. I don't get to make up my own rules. I don't get to make up my own way of seeking pleasure. The one who fears the Lord is the one who recognizes him as God. Fear the Lord. The one who sees God as he is will come out of both errors of legalism and licentiousness. This is what it means to honor Christ as Lord in our hearts, as we are commanded to do in the Scriptures. He is not safe, but He is good. We are accountable to God. So there are some things to consider for us this morning who, like I have often been, a legalist, we need to consider this. The warning in chapter 5 of the same book, in Solomon's warning in chapter 5, he says, Be not, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. We do not get to play fast and loose with God's word. His standards are absolute. We do not get to add to them. Don't be rash with your vows. Do not add to the law of God. Don't become puffed up with knowledge. Repent of arrogance, pride, self-trust. Fear the Lord who searches the hearts of men. He knows our secret sins and our hypocrisy. We might be able to fool everybody else. But we cannot fool God. He knows our hearts. He sees past our facade. The legalists this morning repent and fear the Lord because we can't fool Him. To the licentious, to those who might be an unbeliever this morning or might be a Christian who just acted as if God has no law whatsoever, if you're in the sound of my voice, hear me this morning. Your time is drawing to a close. God will not be mocked by continuation in sin. He has endured you with much patience. He's given you every blessing, food, warmth, family, security. But this, is, this earth is the closest to heaven you will ever get if you continue in unrepentant sin. And in year 2020, that seems pretty bad. <laughs> this is the closest to heaven, really? Come to him while he may be found. Amen. Repent of wickedness and lawlessness before you are hardened past the point of repentance. You understand repentance is a gift. It's not something that we drum up. It's not something that we white knuckle. God grants repentance. Come to him while he can be found. Fear the Lord who brings all deeds into judgment. That's the assurance in this last chapter of the book, this last, the last verses in the book, he will bring every secret deed into judgment. Fear the Lord. And so we hear that. The end of the matter is this. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. And we say, yes, Lord, we will fear you. We will keep your commands. And God answers from heaven. Turn with me to Romans 3.
Romans chapter 3. This is what God makes of our vows. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless, and no one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is God's assessment of us, the human race. Every member of the human race, there is no fear of God before their eyes. We have all turned and gone astray. We are all under sin. The Lord has spoken. Tremble. The verdict has been rendered guilty. Let's continue. Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Do we think that we can please God through keeping rules, through keeping the law? No. No flesh will be justified in his sight through keeping the law. We have all turned astray and gone aside. We have no righteousness. Fear the Lord and obey his commands is the law. And the law was not meant to justify us, since by the law no flesh will be justified in his sight. But the law was meant to give us knowledge of sin. Let's keep reading. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. But there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a free gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. We have no righteousness on our own. Even if we could somehow resolve to stop sinning all the rest of our days, say, God, I will obey you. I will trust you. I will fear you perfectly. I will obey your commands. Even if we could miraculously stop sinning, all the sins that we have already committed already merit eternal punishment. Think how many people that you know that have died at your age or before your time, who have died in sin, who have died lost. That alone was enough to merit punishment. Even if we could miraculously stop sinning, we 
are still accountable and liable to God. We cannot atone for our own sins by future obedience. But here's the good news this morning. But God put Jesus forward as a propitiation for us, the sacrifice that satisfied our debts both now and forever and has cleansed us from unrighteousness. Jesus became a man and he lived a perfect life. His righteousness was not feigned. It wasn't pretend. It wasn't a facade that we put up to disguise our wickedness. His righteousness was real. He was the true and better Adam. He never sinned in deed or affection. His motivation for keeping the law was perfect. He never sinned. And the burning cup of God's wrath that burns against the legalist and the licentious was poured into the cup of Jesus Christ and he drank it to the dregs. The judgment that burns against us was poured onto Jesus Christ when he was crucified in our place for our sins. And he was raised for our justification. And this is a gift. Catch that, it's a gift, it's not earned. Redemption through faith in Jesus Christ, through his propitiation that God, not us, God put Jesus Christ forward as a propitiation for us to be received by faith. This requires nothing of us. All we provided was the sin that required it. The gospel is that God saved us single-handedly. So repent. Repent of wickedness and receive redemption through faith in Jesus Christ because He alone can save us. Now for those who have been justified in Christ... Let's turn back to Ecclesiastes. The law was meant to give us knowledge of sin. It's meant to demonstrate to us that we cannot keep the law. It's meant to us as a reflection to show how wicked we are. That's the first use of the law, is to show us that we cannot keep the law. But for those who are in Christ, for those who have been redeemed, not through our law-keeping, but through the law-keeping of Jesus Christ, through receiving His work by faith, the law now comes to us, this third use of the law, which is to show us the character and nature of God and what He desires. We hear the law now and say, we want to obey you. We want to obey this law, not out of fear of judgment, but out of love for what he's done for us because we want to please God rather than men. We hear this law and we say, we want to keep it. So what is the command in this passage? Fear God. Fear God. Psalm 130 3 through 4, gives us this beautiful juxtaposition. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? 
But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Those who truly fear God are those who are forgiven. Those who know the power of God in canceling our sin, in taking the punishment for our sin, we see and we fear truly more than anyone else is able to because we see this is our God. That you may be feared. This command is also repeated throughout the New Testament. Don't fear earthly rulers. Fear God instead. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, we've been told. And this is what he tells us in verse 719. He shows us the benefit of having wisdom. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. You want strength? Do you want to operate in a world in such a way that God has created it? We have an advantage. We know the God who created the world. We know how he created it to work. Acting according to his wisdom that he has given us through his scripture gives us strength. It gives us succor. We can obey God and we have a natural understanding of how the world works. Those who live in rebellion to the knowledge that they have of God are suppressing the truth that they know about God to be true. They come to all sorts of silly conclusions. <coughs> the earth was, was randomly formed by time and chance. And we all just appeared from pond scum. That's not wise. It's foolish. There are as many genders as we can imagine because we're on a spectrum. There's not some fixed binary that, because we weren't created. We were just random chance. And so therefore, randomness gives way to chaos. That's not wisdom. It's foolish. We have the word of God. He has spoken to us. We don't have to guess about how the world's created. He's told us. He told us how this works. And if we act according to the wisdom that we have, it gives us strength. Obey his commands. There's some, there's some commands in this text. We're going to go through the rest of it. Ecclesiastes 7, 21 through 22. Do not take to heart all the things that people say lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. Why somebody say, ouch? Who's guilty of this? When you've heard people say things about you that might not be true, or that may be true, but you just don't like the things they're said about you. We take them to heart. And we forget our own sinfulness. How prone we are to say things, how prone we are to think the worst possible thing about somebody. We're just as wicked as they are. Don't be self-righteous. Forgiveness is what Jesus has purchased for us from God. We owe God so much more than anybody owes us. And we've been forgiven a debt more than anybody has ever forgiven us. 
We can afford to forgive people when they say things about us. Don't take it to heart. Ecclesiastes 7.20 Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. We know that we have a sin nature. We know that even at our best, we still have things to repent of. Don't be self-righteous. Boasting is excluded by the law of faith. Another command for us is in the found this next part of the passage, verse 23. All this I've tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been far off and deep, very deep, who can find it out? I turn my heart to know and to search out and seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I found something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Men, beware the seductress. How many times has this same warning been told us in Proverbs that there when we chase after sexual immorality, seeking pleasure, there's death that follows. And here he says, bitterness worse than death. Men, do you want to destroy your life? Do you want your life to feel worse than death? Pursue the seductress. Commit adultery. Fornicate. These are all ways in which you will destroy your life, it will feel worse than death. It's to be unfaithful to your wife, to be unfaithful to God. There's great warning in this. We who are in Christ should flee sexual immorality, flee youthful lusts, flee the seductress. Don't put yourself in that situation because it could destroy not only your life, but the life of everybody around you. We, as men, have been given the gift of being federal heads of our families. God looks at us and will account, uh, demand account on our behalf for how our family turns out, how many lives have been ruined from sexual immorality. Men, flee the seductress. Flee her. This means not only just the, the physical person, but also pornography and things you shouldn't be looking at. That starts in your heart, that giving in to that hunger, that craving for sin will destroy you. It will make you unfit. Flee the seductress. Because we have greater pleasure in Christ. He has given us many gifts. He's given us, in many cases, wives. And he, for some of you who are not yet married, or for some, for some of you who are single, God is enough. Pleasure is found in Him forevermore. He gives us the gift of family, the gift of a church. Flee the seductress. Women, there's an implicit charge in here too. Don't be a seductress, right? Don't be the woman whose hearts are snares and nets, whose hands are fetters. Realize the power that you have to destroy men. In some ways, 
God judges men through you. He says, the one who pleases God escapes her. But the sinner is taken by her. Understand the power that you have to destroy men. Don't be a seductress. Don't be immodest. Just like God raised up Assyria to punish Israel. Like I said, God in some sense judges men through you, but make no mistake, he'll judge you too. He judged Assyria for punishing Israel. And all this comes down to being a man or woman of integrity. Solomon, in verse 23 through 28, said in his life he knew many men and women. And he only knew one righteous man in a thousand. And he knew no righteous women in a thousand. Consider the women he surrounded himself with. He had 300 wives and 700 concubines. That's a thousand women right there. But integrity, being a person who people can look at and trust and know that you're a man or woman of your word, that you will not lead people astray. That's the gift that we have in having the Holy Spirit in us to lead us into righteousness, to lead us into paths of righteousness. We can be people of integrity. People should not be able to say the same about us, that you should be that one righteous man or woman in a thousand, at least, in our community. God has created us to be salt and light in our communities. We carry the gospel with us. Don't weight it down with sin. Trust God. Repent of sin. We can confess sin knowing that it's forgiven because Jesus has already paid the penalty for it. So I urge you this morning, be a man or woman of integrity. If you have sin that needs being confessed, confess it to God and to others and repent because there is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. It's never too late. And finally, in this last verse in the chapter, he says this, See this alone that I have found, that God made man upright, but they sought out many schemes. God made man upright, speaking of in the garden before the fall, but we sought out many schemes. We are not autonomous. God is Lord. We need to fear him as Lord. We don't get to seek out righteousness by other schemes. We don't get to offer strange fire. We don't get to seek out pleasure by another means. He is Lord. We don't have that right. To honor Christ as Lord in our hearts means that we play according to His rules. He has the authority in not only what we pursue, but how we pursue it. For us who are in Christ, more than anyone else in the world, we should be able to say we fear the Lord. We honor Him as Lord. He is our King. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, You have saved us from ourselves. For those who know You in this room this morning, You have rescued us from our sin. You have rescued us from the penalty of our sin. Help us to forsake that for which you died. Help us not to treasure sin. Help us not to treasure 
those things which lead us astray and destroy our witness. And God, for those in here this morning that are far from you who are feeling the weight of conviction for their sin, whether it be self-righteousness and pretending that they are better than they are, whether it be licentiousness where they are just casting off restraint. God, I pray that you would save them. I pray that you would thunder through their hearts the good news of Jesus Christ that every single sin has been paid for. There is nothing else that they can offer. There is no penance to be made. There is no right or magic words. Help them to receive by faith the work of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Help us to confess our sins, to repent of our sins. Give us boldness to repent. It's been said that Jesus was more willing to go to the cross than we to the mercy seat of Jesus Christ. Let that not be true of us this morning. Save us. Rescue us. Redeem us. Help us to fear you because we have been forgiven much. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.